And now he admits that at this time, he relied a lot on guitar effects pedals to mask his lack of ability, or as we like to call it, being a guitar player. Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where lifelong friends, musicians, complainers, and music fans tell the stories behind the albums from the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So we'll give you some history, some context on the artist and album, and then we'll dive into some of the actual tracks. We'll also be dropping in clips along the way, so don't worry if you're unfamiliar with the album or artist, I certainly was. Now, we're all musicians. We've all made music. We know just how much goes into it. So we've got a ton of respect for anyone with the guts and dedication to put their ideas on tape. But it's also fun to nitpick the things you love. So just a warning, we're going to be making fun of this album a little bit today. Now, at the end of all this, we're going to vote on whether you actually need to hear this album before you die, and then we'll randomly select next week's album. I want to thank you for choosing us to spend the next hour with. And to get things started, I need to revisit something I said at the start of our Jimi Hendrix episode, something like 15 episodes ago. I said I thought it was cool that Hendrix had a rehearsal interrupted by Henry Mancini, who told Jimmy to turn down. You all ripped me apart and said that the guy who wrote the Pink Panther certainly wasn't that cool. Neither was being scolded by him. Okay, so I'm going to attempt to redeem myself here. So here we go. You may think you're cool, but has Freddie Mercury ever bought you takeout from McDonald's? No? Then you're not as cool as today's artist. Well, I was really wondering where you were going with that. What's the tie between Jimmy Hendrix and Gary Newman? I thought it was just a genuine apology. (laughs) Of course not. No genuine apologies on this show. My name is Adam. I've been playing music for 30 years and have played professionally for over a decade. And you clicked on the episode so you know that today we're talking about British electronic music icon Gary Newman and his 1979 album, The Pleasure Principle. So let's kick things off with arguably the biggest track off this album. Well, it was certainly the biggest track in the USA. This is a song called Cars. So buckle up for some synthesizers. I'm very excited to get into this artist today. But first, we got to introduce our cast of characters on the episode today. So we're going to throw it around the studio and get those introductions by way of a tweet-length review of this album. So I'm going to throw it over to Marty first. Here we go. As if being an only child Brit with Asperger's wasn't hard enough, (laughs) Gary Newman created a number one hit in the UK using no guitars. It, it only took about three seconds for Asperger's to come up. All right, so that you beat me to it. All right, thank you, Marty. Let's throw it over to Tom. Well, you know, I wasn't sure if the 
Asperger slash autism references were going to be kosher on this one. So I wrote two tweet length reviews in case one of them wasn't going to fly. First tweet length review is smash music for robots. If robots could be autistic. And the second tweet length review is in keeping with the spirit of his exclusive use of one word titles for his songs. I have a one word tweet length review. Nope. Nice. All right. Plenty of snark up front. I like it. All right. Well, this is Adam. And my tweet is no hard drugs in sight. No cadre of horny groupies. No trashed hotel rooms. In the pleasure principle, Gary Newman, the unlikeliest of stars, deploys his autism, synthesizers, and a lot of luck to help kick off the new wave that was New Wave. Ah, good Lord. Can we just start talking about this album? I didn't like this album. No? I got to tell you, no, didn't like this album. Listen, I am here to be convinced, though. All right. My musical taste, like, I would have to hop two connecting flights to get to where my musical taste (laughs) and this album intersect. (laughs) Oh, man. So I I didn't like it from the beginning, but I want to know why it was important, because to me, this seemed like a bunch of sketches of ideas that got turned into full-length songs. My approach is always, if you strip all the bells and whistles away and just play it on a piano or an acoustic guitar, does it still sound like a good song? And if it does, it's a great song. And these, if you stripped away all the synth bells and whistles, they're just... 20-second ideas that somehow got turned into songs. You can't apply that standard to every kind of music. I I kind of feel like you can. (laughs) I I mean, that is your gripe with this music, is that if you strip down the songs to a guitar, they're not good. I mean, they're not corny. The lyrics aren't bad. They're produced well. The drum and bass playing is good on the album. I, I I don't see what's so bad about the songs. They are... For the most part, two very simple ideas that are underdeveloped. And I feel like the underdevelopment of them is not in the production and is not in the layering of synths. It is in the actual nugget of the idea itself. I agree that there's almost a childlike... Simplicity, maybe? Simplicity to, yeah. to how the songs are written, but what comes out is how they're layered, I think, is, is kind of what turns them into something else. It, I will admit it turns them into something better. I felt like there was potential, and they focused maybe too much on synth layering and not enough on developing the actual song. And they focused more on the production. Yeah, Tom, it was on the Cindy Lauper album that you said that you hate stabby synth. So when I first heard this, I was picturing Tom rolling around, like grabbing his ears and trying to rip his headphones off. So I assume that is potentially influencing your take on the album. But I thought that there was a mix. I thought some of these ideas were one and two note grooves that they extended into six minute songs, again, just using synthesizer noises, but I also thought there thought there were some nuggets in here that, that were worthwhile. No, there definitely were, and I have on a couple of the notes on the songs that we're going to cover, like, this one sounds like a song. This sounds like a real song. The thing that kind of annoyed me is he uses this trope of multiple instruments doing the same thing, following the same melody, kind of a lot. And I like counter melody a whole lot. Sure, yeah. That is something that, for me 
shows that you went a level deeper on a song. You had one melody and you're like, let me get a complimentary melody to that. That is what I picture as good song craft. And this was not counter melody. This was one melody and maybe like a drone synth note going on in the background. And But then two or three things doing the same thing for most of the song. It kind of hammers the song into your head without having to listen to it very much. The other thing about this is that there's almost no emotion in the singing or the song content, which I think for a lot of people would be a, a turnoff. He has zero emoting in his voice. He does a kind of androgynous robot voice throughout the whole album. That's kind of his shtick. I think it works within the context of this album, what he's going for. Like you said, it's a refutation of guitar. Zero guitars on this album. He went, he leaned into the synth stuff, which I thought kind of matched the voice. I pictured most of the song content. The idea behind the lyrics was, I am a robot or an alien that is confused by modern life and or has a very unique and interesting take on modern life in terms of the way that they picture it. And that's somewhat compelling, but I did not like his vocal delivery. Sure. And by the end of the album, every time I'm just like, oh God, give me something, push <laughs> a note or something like push, give me some. Everything is just in this mid range Every note is super comfortable to hit. Again, when you try to push and hit a note, emotion is just, it comes along for the ride. And that was completely devoid on this album. And again, I'm not necessarily saying it's bad. I'm saying that this is not my kind of music. And I want to know why I should like this. Well, I don't know if I can tell you. (laughs) I'm going to see what I can do. But maybe some listeners will. (laughs) Yeah, I need all our UK contingent of listeners, again, to get their pencils out right now and start taking notes with everything that we're going to say wrong or that you hate. But before I get started in history, I want to give a little reference around a little backstory to that Queen note I mentioned at the top, because I'm going to forget, and I don't want to leave the episode without that. So after this album hit, Gary Newman was a huge star, and Queen happened to be playing in London. So Newman walked up to the box office as a super pop star and just bought a ticket the day of. So he goes in early because he loves Queen, And there's a big commotion around him because people realize there's this pop star here. So Queen hears about it. They invite him backstage. After the gig, they all go out for sushi. Gary Newman, being a weirdo, doesn't like sushi, doesn't want to eat it. So Freddie Mercury doesn't want him to feel lonely. So Freddie Mercury has his driver run to McDonald's and grab food for Gary Newman. And he eats it at a sushi restaurant. Uh, Was it a happy meal, presumably? (laughs) (laughs) Potentially a happy meal. (laughs) I, the story was cooler when I thought it was Freddie Mercury physically going himself and getting him McDonald's <laughs> yeah, and not right. like, excuse me, servant, right. come here, please. Can you get this weirdo as a hamburger or something? <laughs> <laughs> He's got chicken nuggets. So this week I read Gary Newman's 2021 autobiography called Revolution. I thought it was a pretty compelling story about a guy going after his dreams with real purpose and also a very honest musician who very clearly says that most of his success was just right place, right time, and luck. When you think about our friend Dave Mustaine, who thinks he was God's gift to music, Gary Newman in his book, he's a very humble guy in that so much stuff just happened to go his way, and that laid the groundwork for his eventual success. 
I saw something with him, just an interview where he's like, yeah, he's like, I was worked with this guy and he, you know, he thought music was some divine thing gifted to you from the cosmos. He's like, I just wanted to get laid. (laughs) (laughs) I think we can all relate to that with the beginning of our music careers. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) But it's interesting to hear you say that he gives a lot of credit to Right Place, Right Time, because this music sounds dated, clearly. It's at the time where synthesizers and like the the Moog synthesizer was sort of coming into use in popular music. And I was curious as to whether or not he was a product of the time that other people were doing it and he started doing it as well and just did it in a more compelling way. Or if he was really one of the people that put that synthesizer sound at the forefront of popular music and therefore was responsible for most of the 80s because this does sound like the 80s. It comes out sure. in 1979, but it sounds very 80s. Yeah. But it's not like the digital synths that you heard in the 80s. It's still analog, which is being used by Pink Floyd and, you know. Well, I was just saying, this is this is the time where that ceased being used as like an accoutrement to the song and became the core of the, the song. The driving like, factor. Yeah, right. this is what right. the song okay. is about. The song is about this sound. And not, I have a rock band and I'm going to throw some cool weird sounds in the background or something like that. So I was curious as to whether or not he was partly responsible for that. He's considered by the people in the electro-pop culture, at least within the UK, as one of the holy trinity of synth-pop. The others being the Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark and a band called Human League. And Gary Mm. Newman is thrown right in there as, again, kind of kicking off the new wave sound and bucking the punk sound, which he thought was on the way out and which truly was on the way out. And so I think, again, he just happened to play the timing right that in the UK, there was a shift away from this grungy guitar driven punk sound into this new thing. Human League is Don't You Want Me? Is that that? Is that their big hit? Don't you want me, baby? Who was that? Is that Human League? Oh, yes. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You could almost hear like take away punk straightforward guitars and add in a bunch of synths and it's kind of like transitions in in a way that makes sense. Yeah, it's simple. Like punk songs are simple. Well, because we, we had referenced previously, I believe it was on the Thriller episode talking about John Anderson and Vangelis. Uh, oh, yeah, Vangelis, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah doing Vangelis, the, yeah, yeah. you know, the, basically the bass line for Billie Jean coming from one of their songs where they were getting really into synth exploration. And this is certainly not, yes, inspired music. Right. It's not yeah. lots of complex changes yep. and we have to be totally super musical. It is, again, very, very, and I think maybe too simple concepts for songs that are very layered with synth, but very much like punk, they're like oh, three chords. You know, if you play more than three chords, you're doing too much. <laughs> right. And sometimes he's like, three chords is too much. Let's, let's just, do just two. keep it down on two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So let's dive into his life a little bit. Gary Anthony James Webb was born in Hammersmith Hospital in London on March 8th, 1958. Now, this is not one of those hard scrabble come from nothing stories. In fact, Gary grew up quite comfortably. His mother, Beryl, was a dressmaker, and she had him when she was 20. Beryl. Again, a dressmaker. Can yes, we have exactly. more we need that British here. background? <laughs> My dad was a scrivener. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
His father, Tony, had a bunch of different jobs. He was a paint sprayer, a merchant seaman, worked in the National Service with the British Army, drove buses at Heathrow Airport, and eventually became Gary's manager later on in his career. Unlike so many of our stories where the parents are monsters and the kids become stars in spite of them, Gary's parents were wonderful people. Wonderful parents. They encouraged him at every step in his life, constantly reassuring him that he could do whatever he wanted to do. And they also funded a decent amount of his music career, buying him PA, paying for studio time, that type of stuff that we'll see. I was going to say, you can't really be hard scrabble and also on the cutting edge of new synthesizer technology, because that's not cheap. That's not, I, oh, I picked yeah. up a guitar for 12 pounds from the right. local pawn shop or Exa- something. Exactly. Also, also, you can't have siblings. You need to be like alone in a room <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. for yeah. a long period of time. Yeah. So again, growing up, money was tight, but they were not poor by any means. He didn't see his father a whole lot because his father was constantly working to make ends meet. And he recalls being really interested in mechanical things as a kid. And for one of his early birthdays, his father just took a piece of plywood and glued a bunch of knobs and buttons and sliders on it and just gave it to him and said it was his control panel. And he would play (laughs) with this thing for hours, imagining that he was a pilot of a plane or a spaceship. By the way, can we just comment that if he was born in like 1986 or something like that, all of this would have been medicated right out of it. Clearly there's something wrong with you. Let's just give you a bunch of pills until you can sit quietly in the back of the classroom, please. So his family did move around a decent amount. He met two neighborhood kids named Nikki and Gary, another Gary who who would stick with him for most of his life. They formed a little kid band called the Monkey Juniors, which was just basically them lip syncing to the monkeys. So just like the monkeys, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. So he worked his way through primary school. And at the end of primary school, you take a test in the UK to see if you should continue on to secondary school or move on to grammar school. As far as I could tell, grammar school was like the school for kids who tested well, essentially the smarter kids. And everybody else went to secondary school. So he starts grammar school at age 12. He tests really high, very smart kid. In 1970, he moves into grammar school at age 12, and it's around this time that his father bought him a go-kart. Again, maybe they weren't that poor. What the hell, man? (laughs) As I'm reading the story out loud here, but this is him getting into very mechanical things. He developed what he called a mechanical sympathy. He loved how you could sense just through sounds and vibrations what a machine was going through. He said it felt like being one with the machine. (laughs) What the machine is going through? Did Is that a direct <laughs> yeah. quote to how he said it? Because that implies that there is an emotion in that machine. It's like, I'm having a rough day today, man. Translates, man. Translates into some of the content of this album. Now, his school was right next to Heathrow Airport, and he would just watch the planes take off and land all day. So no surprise, he was a very distracted kid and became very disruptive. And around 15 years old, he's doing so poorly that he has to repeat a grade. Now, at this same time, he's becoming obsessed with Mark Bolin of T-Rex and decides that he either wants to be a rock star or a pilot. Spoiler alert, he would actually get to do both at some point in his career. I like 
that he was obsessed with Mark Bolin, who, if you were to put the two approaches to music next to each other, especially <laughs> in terms not. of vocal delivery, could not yes, be farther could not apart. Be further apart. <laughs> One guy's like, how about I sound like a sex fiend coke vampire? And the other guy is like, how about I sound like a fucking robot? <laughs> right, right. But Mark Bolin has that image, though, that pop star image. And that's half, I mean, that's half of what he had going on, in my opinion. He saw the power in it and was really attracted to that. So his parents, again, buying him more stuff. They buy him an electric guitar. He doesn't really learn to play. Instead, he just focused on sounds versus notes is what he said. Isn't it like, was it like a Les Paul or something like really nice? So I think that was that later. That was later that his father okay, bought okay, him okay. a Les Paul. Yeah, I don't think that this one was <laughs> yeah. like a kind of like a knockoff version okay, of a Les right. Paul. It had the Les Paul shape, but it was actually like a $30 Sears brand or whatever the equivalent would be. So he gets his first electric guitar. He starts dyeing his hair. He gets a spiky haircut like David Bowie. He wants that same gaunt, angular face that David Bowie's got from his all milk and hot pepper diet phase. Um, and cocaine. You cannot leave out the cocaine. Yes, exactly. That was a gaunt look. And, and, and cigarettes, yeah. <laughs> the key piece of his diet that I missed. So he gets his ear pierced and unknowingly gets his right ear pierced. For young people who might not know, that was a big deal in the 80s. If you got the wrong ear pierced, it meant you were gay. Now, he insists that it was just an accident. He was only 15 or 16. He doesn't really dive much into his sexuality in the book. He just insists that he didn't know what he was doing. And the person who gave it to him just said, give me your right ear. From this album, he seems asexual. Yeah, This album is completely not sexual at all. It's very androgynous was something that I saw a lot in his stage show, in his performance, in his delivery. Everything was very much, he's a machine. So he got punished a lot for sucking his, for sucking in school. <laughs> for sucking what? <laughs> what? what? <laughs> You're talking about no sexuality, Adam. So he got punished a lot for basically sucking at school. I'm going to cut that out. <laughs> oh, you gotta leave that in. That's gold. That's gold, Adam. <laughs> but his parents never shot down his pop star dreams. But his behavior is so bad that the school recommends he go sees a psychiatrist. So he goes to a psychiatrist, but that person said, You're so far into it that I can't help you. You need to go to a hospital in London for a psych eval with a child psychiatry department. And this is where the doctors mention Asperger's to his mother. Now, at this time, Asperger's was still kind of a loose definition. Same thing with autism. We're talking mid-70s, mid to late 70s. People weren't really sure what was going on. They are like 12 years removed from like, well, I guess it's time for a lobotomy. Right. Like, well, that's where medical technology was. They did wind up pumping him full of drugs for a while, but his parents kind of ignored this Asperger's diagnosis because they thought it reflected on them. They were bad parents. Something they did caused this. So they never really addressed it. They put him on Valium for a year, but he turned into a zombie and hated it and got off of it. Now, he also, as he's discovering this diagnosis of Asperger's, he's also kind of realizing that it's a bit of a superpower for him because it helped him compartmentalize the misery and anguish of being a teenager. All the peer pressure, people making fun of him, being ostracized, he was able to kind of compartmentalize that and put it away so that it didn't affect him that much. Eventually it does affect him, but he said it 
helped him basically get through his teen years. You know, I will say, thank God for music, because being a teenager sucks, but having music as a teenager helped me a whole lot to channel the frustration with everyday life and your ability to not make friends or not be popular enough or not get girls or whatever, and also gave you sort of an identity. You could be the the music guy. Yeah. And I could totally see how that could help if you are a total outcast. I wasn't even an outcast. I was just like an afterthought right. in high school. I'm sure that you and Marty probably feel similar. <laughs> sort of like an afterthought in high school. Nobody really was like, I hate that guy. But nobody was like, oh, that's the, that guy's great. Right. Until they were like, oh, he's the music guy. Okay. I know how to categorize you now. If you have a weird behavioral affectation, you don't want people to be, that's the first thing that they think about when they think about you. It's like, oh, he plays music and he's super fucking weird, but he plays music. <laughs> At least right. he's got that going on. <laughs> but that kind of softens the second part. Right. Also, there's so many, you know, when I was in high school, there's so many cool drugs available, you know, <laughs> <laughs> acid, mushrooms, yeah. you know, yeah. Valium. That would just be like, I'd, be, I'd probably be like, ah, too boring. <laughs> There's a kid in your school who had a whole bunch of value. I mean, he might have been kind of popular. Though. Yeah. Very tired, but very popular. So he eventually gets kicked out of grammar school and is demoted back to secondary school. But his parents never shut down his talk of being a pop star. And just before being asked to leave the secondary school for failing out, he meets with a career counselor. And the career counselor asks him, well, what do you want to do? And this, this is a quote from the book. He said... I couldn't explain what kind of job I wanted. I could only explain what I wanted from it, the atmosphere I needed it to have. I wanted something that was constantly changing, endlessly challenging, something that involved travel and excitement, something unpredictable, fast-moving, and creative. I couldn't think of any normal job that could give me that kind of life, except for a pop star, which is not a normal job. But So that that's another thing where he's thinking, well, there's nothing else I want to do. I don't have anything else to lose. I'm failing out of school. Why don't I just go for it? So legally in the UK, you have to finish a certain amount of schooling. So in order for him to be compliant, he goes to a technical college and takes one class. And it happens to be a music class. And this is another pivotal moment in his life. So the professor gives them an assignment to just write a piece of music. So he did it. He gave it to the teacher. It was on sheet music and the teacher played it. It sounded good. But the teacher looked at it and said, you can't have that. And Gary looked up and was like, but it sounds good, right? And the teacher goes, that's not the point. And that was the moment where Gary thinks, well, sometimes not knowing the right way to do things is actually a good thing. And Tom, you've mentioned that many times, right? When you don't know the rules, you're able to be much more creative and not follow a strict set of guidelines for your art. Yeah, you focus on the end result and not the process. And I'm sure that the teacher, to his, you know, to give the teacher a little bit of cover here, he was probably trying to teach him like harmonic theory. Right. Or like, how this many, is how harmonic theory works. How many yes. beats need to fit in a measure, right? And you're just like yeah. drawing with like crayons. It's like, well, that's actually not right. But so he falls through the cracks in the UK school system. And his father eventually comes up and says, look, you keep talking about being a pop star. You need to get off your ass and do something about it. Nothing is just going to happen. So at around 17, he starts looking for gigs as a guitar player. He joins some cover bands, but quickly gets tired of playing Proud Mary and Route 66. So he starts looking for original bands. Now, keep in mind that he is cripplingly shy at this point. So it doesn't come very easy for him to put himself out there at rehearsals. So the fact that he starts making these calls and going on auditions is a pretty big deal. So 
he gets the melody maker and he finds some ads and he starts making some phone calls. And now he admits that at this time he relied a lot on guitar effects pedals to mask his lack of ability, or as we like to call it, being a guitar player. So he said at one rehearsal, the band asked him to turn off all his effects and play clean, and he was sent home halfway through the next song. <laughs> okay, but this gets back to what I was talking about with the beginning of the general impression of the album is that it doesn't sound bad when you put a whole bunch of shit on top of it, but if you strip it away, then like, <laughs> right, actually, right. there's really not a whole lot going sure. on here. Okay, okay, yeah. yep. So now, as he is doing all this, this is really the same time that British punk was coming to the forefront in 1976. And in 76, he went to see the Sex Pistols live. And while he liked the energy and the excitement, he didn't really like punk music. But he saw the trend and knew that the next step on his path to get him to the next rung of the ladder was to start a band. So he started a punk band. Him on guitars, somebody he said was a David Bowie lookalike on bass and a coke fiend on lead guitar. And they started gigging playing some of Gary's original stuff. The band never focused in on a band name. They had a couple. He said they would switch names with every gig that they played. Three of them were Riot. Pretty good. Okay. Heroin. All right. No. Mm -hmm. Stiletto. No. You have to have a look to pull you off You do. You have to be the New York Dolls in order yeah, to pull off. Yeah, it's not a jeans off. and t-shirt band. Definitely. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Very good point. So the band is making some progress that, that he's starting here, but one day he shows up to rehearsal and someone else is singing all the songs. So not only did he lose the gig, but everybody in this band, for some reason, shuns him, even in public. That was Gary's take on it, that for no reason they fired him. But, you know, coming from his own autobiography, I'm sure there's a little more to the story. Maybe some aspects of his autism played into him being kicked out of the band, I imagine. He sounds like a super fucking weird and awkward he guy. <laughs> So I could see them being like, hey, you know, we have these great gigs and then like a whole bunch of chicks come up to us after the show and then they talk to you and they leave. And I'm like, this is weird. I don't want to be around you guys anymore. <laughs> it's punk music. We don't need a good singer. How about we just get somebody else who has some charisma? So he joins another cover band and after playing with them for a bit, asks them, why don't you guys play your own music? And they replied that they didn't have any. And hey, Gary chimes in and said he had a bunch. So they learned some of those songs. And this is the start of Gary's first band, Tubeway Army. And they started as a punk project, but Gary describes them as a punk band with melodies, not just shouting, which is how he kind of compartmentalized punk music. That's a weird, that's a weird concept. Like, I, I feel like I hear this a lot where like you join a cover band and you say, I know I just joined a cover band, but why don't we just not play any covers? <laughs> <laughs> well, for everybody else in the band who's not writing the music, it is still kind of like covers, right? Here, play this, uh, yeah, play yeah, this song. So. Yeah. It's covers, but nobody wants to hear them. Right. It's great. <laughs> yeah. So Gary was never super into this two-way army project, but he saw it as a next step forward into his eventual life as a pop star. Now, at the same time, he's doing a ton of research, not just getting random gigs, but he's really trying to engineer the success of this band. He's finding out what clubs to play at, what magazines to talk to, what people to invite the gig. And in 1977, the band realizes they need a demo. I just wanted to say, in any other episode, when you said, at this time, he's doing a ton of... 
I would have expected the answer to be cocaine or some other drug. Right. And for him, it's research. It's like, right, research. Yeah, you know, fucking totally. rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. And also, yeah, and also, like, mommy and daddy keep coming in. Like, oh, and then yeah. mommy and daddy. And then he's 40 and he, you know, yeah. wanted to get a car. So his mommy bought him one. <laughs> yeah. They're probably just like, we're so happy you have friends. Right? Right. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> Yeah, when I think back to the polar opposite was the Megadeth, where Dave Mustaine finds that bass player whose name escapes me, but he was like 17, and in six months, Mustaine already had him doing heroin and speedballs. <laughs> Same Jesus. age as this guy. Yeah. You're right, this guy's doing research. Oh, and Mustaine's parents were like, dad out of the picture, alcoholic, abusive stepdad, right. mom doesn't give a shit about him, David. This is very wholesome. He's just being shepherded through his life by people who are like keeping the guardrails up and like, don't worry, mommy and daddy are here. We've got it for you, buddy. So his mom and dad front him the money to record this demo. So they go into a cheap studio and they record three songs in a day with his uncle playing drums. So it's a family affair. His uncle couldn't have put the money up? As an adult, couldn't have put the money. I guess he's a drummer. He's a drummer. Yeah, Come on, good point. <laughs> I was going to say his uncle's a musician, so he has no money. <laughs> so with demo in hand, they started taking it around to different record labels, and that wasn't going well. He tells of one story where they had an A and R man literally throw their cassette out the door of his office and told him to f off. Now the tube way army bass player, a guy named Paul Gardner, was looking to score some cash. Again, any other episode, that sentence would have been, was looking to score some blow. I assume that you're about to say he sold all of the cents that Gary Newman had bought for heroin money. Gary has no cents yet at this point. Okay, okay, okay. So this bass player goes to a record store to sell some of his old albums and tapes, and he just strikes up a conversation with the clerk who was at the store. The record store was called Beggar's Banquet, and the clerk said that the shop owners were starting their own label and were looking for talent and that he would pass their demo along. Big lucky strike number one right there. All right. So wait, is, is Beggar's Banquet, does that have anything to do with the Rolling Stones? Or is, don't they have an album called Beggar's Banquet? Is that, or is, that like a ter- is that a common term that comes from like the Bible or something? And the second thing is, is he Gary Newman at this point? He is not. Or is he, he still? Is, he's not. Okay. Okay. He may even be calling himself Valerian at this point. Um, okay. Mm. Yeah. But he is not Gary Newman quite yet. So a couple days later, a guy named Marty Mills calls Gary and says that he's interested in them, but wants to see them live. So he gets them an opening gig for another band who's also on this Beggar's Banquet label. The gig goes well, but this is where Gary starts to talk about his near crippling anxiety before gigs. He's so nervous that he can't even hold conversations before he walks on stage. Later on in his career, there was one story where he was actually curled up in a ball in the corner. But once they manage to get him on stage, he's fine. Something snaps in his head and he puts himself in this personality. Sometimes it's the personality he portrays on the album. Sometimes it's a robot. But anyway, that's how he's able to kind of get past this. You know, we talked about this on the REM episode about how Michael Stipe talked about being painfully shy, but on stage, he's a different person. He's a character on stage. Right, he's like, if right. you can get me into character, I can perform. But if you just try to talk to me after the show, I'm weird and awkward, and <laughs> I'm going to be shrinking in the conversation and trying to get out of it as soon as possible. And 
frankly, I have found that to be true with myself as well. You do have to kind of get into character. I've always had the idea that when you're on stage, if you go halfway, you're definitely going to fail. Oh, yeah. If you go all the way, you might fail. But you also might succeed. But halfway is definitely going to fail. Also, two drinks is a good number to have <laughs> yes. before you get on the yes. stage. <laughs> yes. The third drink you bring on to stage. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the day after the gig, Marty Mills calls Gary up and says, we want to sign you, but we're a new label and we don't have a ton of money. Gary tells Marty Mills, look, we don't need money. We don't need PA. We don't need a van. All we need is to have this first single pressed. So they signed to Beggar's Banquet, who agreed to press this single. So they released a single called That's Too Bad in February of 1978. That song is very rock, kind of punk, straight ahead, loud guitars, sounds nothing like this album. But he was 19 He had a record deal. He had released his first single, which only sold 4,000 copies, but he's on his way. He has started his journey. So Gary convinces Beggar's Banquet to fund a second recording session. They agree. And this is the first time Gary has been in a legit professional studio. They get into the studio and they record a song called Bombers. And while in this quick session, this is where Gary insists that punk is dead. And they need to move in a different direction. Can we just talk for a second about how amazing it is how fast punk died? Yo! Faster than jazz. I mean, you could have thought <laughs> anything that. It was like three and a half years where you could get in and be cool. Yeah, and then after that, it was so passe. <laughs> oh my God, we've all moved on to different styles. I guess that's what happens when your musical genre is aimed specifically at the cutting edge new thing. Yeah. And you can't be the cutting edge new thing for 15 years. Yeah, right. Nothing died faster than disco. I don't know. Disco lasted for a bit. <laughs> I think disco lasted for longer than punk did. Disco also, it started out with like, hey, this is kind of cutting edge. And then it became so ubiquitous that it was, you know, getting played by the moms in the minivans Oof. before minivans were invented type of shit, you know. The death knell of cool music. Yeah, it went real pop real fast and just got played on everywhere and was getting played in malls. Nobody was ever playing Sex Pistols songs over the PA in a mall or something <laughs> yeah. like that. It was always a little dangerous and out on the edge. So this single called Bombers doesn't sell very well, and the UK music press is destroying Tubeway Army. They're saying Gary is a dollar store Billy Idol impersonator. And one reviewer said of the single Bombers, quote, please give up gracefully, old chums. The market for this sort of heavyweight monotony has died. Never mind. You can sit and tell your grandchildren how you nearly made it. Ooh, boosh. That's that's good English snark going on there. I like it. (laughs) It's like the Dowager chimed in on that one from Downton Abbey. Yeah, nobody does pissy and bitchy better than the English, I gotta say. You guys are good at it. So Two Boys' first headlining gig after they released these two singles had three people in the crowd, and they were all from the record label. Now, they hadn't broken up yet, but the last gig they would ultimately play as a band, as Two Boy Army, was in July of 1978. But they head back into the studio to record a full-length album, and it is here that Gary walks into the studio and sees the mini Moog. This is a life-changing event. He goes over and starts to play with it. And this is a very special moment for him. He talks about this moment in the book, like, I don't know, like he's seeing his kid for the first time. He said the second he played it, 
It was an exhilarating sonic assault on the ears, also potentially a review of this album. But up until that (laughs) point, he had only ever associated synths with prog rock, like ELP and Yes, but he started mucking around with it, and a light bulb went off in his brain within about 10 minutes of playing it that this was the direction he wanted to go. So as he's playing with it, he is mentally rearranging the songs they were going to record that day to figure out how to enhance and enrich it with synthesizer. At this point, he's still Valerian or whatever. He's still Valerian at this point, yes. So they do exactly that. So the first two-way album is loud, heavy guitars with synth added throughout, still a guitar album, and he never told the label about this new direction, and they are pissed when they hear it. (laughs) However, they do wind up releasing it, and it does okay. It sold a couple thousand albums, and Gary thinks that he's the inventor of this new style of music. And it's not until he starts digging more that he realizes there are a lot of other bands who are doing this sound at the same time. British bands, like we mentioned the Human League, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, Fat Gadget, Daniel Miller, Ultravox, Kraftwerk. But after listening to those bands, he saw a distinction between them and him. He saw that Electronica was trying to remove the humanity from music completely, whereas what he was doing was trying to amplify the human and emotional aspect. Again, that's what he said. I also I think that there's a more drastic difference between those like Kraftwerk and this Gary Newman album is that Kraftwerk's songs are much more complex. I saw him talking about Kraftwerk and he was saying that they were more obsessed with kind of automating music and having the instruments play the songs where he wanted to play the instrument and have other members play it like it was a live, full, collaborative sort of project. His words. Yeah. his uh, Yeah. I'm sure he said that. I don't think that that's the main distinction between those two bands. He's probably right. I'm sure he's much more of a student of this type of music than I am. But I'm not a big Kraftwerk fan, but those songs sound more developed. Put together, yeah. what we got, yeah. So as he is developing this love affair with the synthesizer, he said something that I thought was a good explanation of maybe how he approaches music and synth, which is sometimes one note is enough. Let the sound evolve. Let that be the drama. No need for a thousand notes per second guitar solo. But his idea was that... You hit a note on a piano, it's a note, great. Same thing with guitar. You can add some vibrato. But the idea of a synth, of being able to manipulate, evolve, transform the sound in real time while still playing one note, that's really where he felt he could express himself was in the evolution of the sound that the synthesizer enabled. I think that's what makes it sound dated because he's in love with the sound of synth in a way that I don't think a modern listener would be so in love with those sounds because they've just been around for a long time. It doesn't sound new and it doesn't sound revolutionary. At the time, maybe it was new and revolutionary. It probably was more new and revolutionary to just give me one note and then fiddle a knob to change sure. the, you know, oh, it's going to Sawtooth now or something mm-hmm. like that. That that's It was new, probably. But again, I keep... I keep wanting to talk shit on this album i keep going through your background i will sneak in my little shit talks as we go (laughs) so beggar's banquet agrees to fund a second album with two-way army 
And at this point, Gary is the main creative force behind the band. So they write, record, and release an album called Replicas. And it's kind of a sci-fi concept album. A lot of your standard sci-fi tropes of trusting robots to run society. But the robots realize that humans are the biggest threat, so they go and kill all humans. We've heard it a million times. I don't know if that was new back then. I feel like that's been around since the 20s. (laughs) So they released the first single off this album. It's a song called Down in the Park terrible single to release as the first single off an album. Gary readily admits it. The song was bad. It's really downbeat, somber melody over four minutes long. It gets zero radio play, but it sold 10,000 copies. Now, two months later, buckle up. Is that all mom and dad, by the way? (laughs) No, that was was Beggar's Banquet. Oh, I got you. (laughs) Mom and dad buying 10,000 copies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're doing great, Gary. Yeah. Don't look in the basement. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so two months later, and we're going to buckle up for an insane meteoric rise. In May of 1979, they release a second single called Our Friends Electric. Very electronic song, all about a robot prostitute. Now, unbeknownst to Gary, someone at the label decides to cut 20,000 copies of the single, but they did it on a picture disc, which was new tech at that point, imprinting an image on the vinyl itself. So Gary notes another just random stroke of luck here. Somebody at the label took an unknown band, picked the most expensive media to use, with their prior single only selling 10,000 copies, and this single was over five minutes long. It was strange, no chorus, you can't dance to it. Everything was set up for this to fail but it somehow jumps into the charts. And they were generating enough buzz to get on the Old Grey Whistle Test, which is a musical variety show in the UK. They're freaking out. He can't believe it that they're going to be on this show where he's seen all of his heroes, Mark Bolin, playing on it. And he's suffering a lot of anxiety at that point. But he has a very specific idea of what he wants this to look like with the lighting, the staging, how he was going to look. At the time, everything was super colorful. It was corny, it was loud, it was bright. We talked about Mark Boland. I mean, you can't get more loud and bombastic and colorful than that. And Gary was intent on this very sterile, androgynous look. He never looked at the camera when he was on stage for this old gray whistle test. So they finished that. The next day, they score a spot on top of the pops. Same thing. The two shows air two days apart. On top of the pops, they definitely stuck out for that month for British music television. Some of the other acts that month on top of the pops were Blondie, Roxy Music, ELO, Elvis Costello. And here's Gary looking like a robot, not looking at the camera, zero emotion. And as it happens, the day after the top of the pops performance airs, that limited run of picture albums, 20,000 copies sells out. And that is a great spot for our favorite segment here, By the Numbers. So I just hit you with this one, 20,000. That's the number of limited edition copies of the single, Our Friends Electric, that sold the day after Top of the Pops. 20. That's the number of spots in the charts that Our Friends Electric was jumping per week. 34. That's the days between their first Top of the Pop appearance and their second Top of the Pops appearance. They booked them almost back to back because they were blowing up. And this is still two way army, right? This, this is not, is still, they haven't right. moved to this Gary still, Newman yet. Correct. This is still this is two way army. army. 40,000 is the next number. As in 40,000 copies per day 
of Our Friends Electric is being sold after their second appearance on Top of the Pops. Six, the number of weeks it took for that song to go from nothing to number one in the UK charts where it stayed for a month. Number 10, he was the 10th person at the time in the UK to simultaneously have a number one album and a number one single twice in a year. Well, throw that one out again. Yes. Throw, throw that out again. I want to hear that again. He was the 10th person at the time in the UK to simultaneously have a number one album and a number one single twice in one year. Two now, number one be, singles and two number one albums in the same year. The 10th person. The 10th right. person, <laughs> <The tenth> <laughs> person to accomplish that feat. But this is the year that, like, The Wall comes out. And... London Calling comes out, and Breakfast in America comes out. There was so much stuff coming out in 1979. <laughs> God damn. He was going That's against impressive. the grain. Yeah. And number three, he released three albums in 11 months around the pleasure principle. And finally, our last number is 1990. And that is the decade of our first song battle, Adam, what the hell are you talking about? Well, as you may know, we recently launched a Patreon page here at 1001 Album Complaints, and we've started creating some Patreon-exclusive content, like our very first song battle, which is where we all put forward our opinions on the greatest song of the 90s, and then we battle it out over the course of five episodes, trying to convince our fellow hosts why we're right and why everyone else is stupid. And who deserves to be named the best song of the 90s? Now, that is up in Patreon. So if you can't get enough of us on this feed, head over to Patreon and sign up. You can also sign up for free at Patreon. And while you won't get access to the exclusive content, it will keep you up to date on any updates and any new content that we're putting out there. So we hope to see you over at patreon.com slash 1001 album complaints. And of course, that link is in the episode notes. All right, so let's get back into this album. When we last left Gary, he was taking over the world and cue the hatred from all the other earlier electronic bands who think they should be at number one. Now, Gary is only 21 at this point, and over the course of about six weeks, he goes from no one to the it music guy. So almost immediately after their second Top of the Pops performance, Gary goes back into the studio to start working on this album called The Pleasure Principle. However, it's not Two Boy Army. It is now Gary Newman. So he records this album at Marcus Studios in London, still with Beggar's Banquet, and he produces it himself as well. How did he make that decision? I have a number one single. I have a number one album. The hardest thing is to get your name known as a band. Two-Boy Army, it's known. Let's just put it under Gary Newman, a name that he got from a fucking plumber, right? <laughs> In the Yellow Pages, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because his name's not Gary Newman, it's Gary Webb, and yep. Gary Newman is not an improvement over Gary Webb in terms of like how boring the name is. He's like, oh, the famously charismatic and image-conscious plumbers, let me look there for a new name. I was thinking this was Randy Newman the whole time. Like I didn't even know. I, I didn't even know there was a difference. So I was like, "Oh, Randy Newman, yeah, that guy." Yeah. <laughs> I think that he was always hell bent on a creative control, but b being a pop star, not being a band. So I think mm. this was his opportunity. Now, how he convinced 
Beggar's Banquet. Not sure. It could just be that he was the star. You know, you look at him on top of the pops. The other musicians are in the back. It's him looking like a weirdo. So stick with your superstar guy. Put him up front. Put his name on it and buckle up for the ride. That's a weird mix of I have imposter syndrome. I'm super awkward. I'm super shy. I'm a megalomaniac who wants to be the world famous pop star. That's a weird mix. I did find that odd reading through his book. There was a definite, I guess it's a dichotomy of, yeah, him him holding these two thought processes in his mind while, again, always going back to how he's got Asperger's and he has to compartmentalize his relationships. He's cr- right, cripplingly terrified of going on stage, but he also wants to be the pop star that he became. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I feel like I, it's understandable. It's like we all have delusions, you know, about kind of who we could be if we could be someone else. And, you know, if we actually were stuck in that position with our consciousness as it is right now, it might feel awkward. Way different. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so for this new album, he leans even further into electronic music and takes away one thing that people thought you needed for hit music in 1979, and that's guitar. The British music press ripped him for his prior album, and wanting to stick it to the music press, he leans hard on synth, gets rid of guitars. And while this is not a concept album, according to him, it does include a lot of this weird mix of technology and robots and consciousness. And before we dive right into the songs, I just want to give you a quick overview of the next couple years in his life. So only a couple months after Pleasure Principle is released, he does a headlining world tour and is crushing it. I mean, we are talking selling out. He is the pinnacle of success. He basically releases an album per year for the next decade, but he struggles to get back to the glory and popularity of this album. In a really odd move that he now regrets, he retires from touring, not from writing music, but from touring in 1981, only two years after this album comes out, because he can't handle the stress, and the press and the tabloids are shredding him to pieces. He's losing money with every concert he performs, so he stops touring but continues writing music. Super interesting dude, super interesting life. He becomes a pilot and flies around the world at one point. That was a couple chapters, very interesting. But you're not here to hear about pilots and airplanes. I do have one question. You mentioned that he's losing money on every concert that he plays. Is there some massive stage show that's going along with this? There is. So. Okay. He was also known at the time for one of the most elaborate and extensive light shows that he took on tour, that he's hand-designed, self-designed. Mm. There were giant pyramids on stage that were the size of a car that were moving around and choreographed with his movements on stage. So it, it sounded like it was like a muse show. Yeah, or like The Wall, which was touring at the same time, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Now, he didn't have management at the time. That was another problem, too. So he had no idea how to manage the books. He never wanted to just stop touring. He wanted to give people a good and cheap concert. So he was losing money. Eventually, his father steps in, becomes his manager, but gets to the point... (laughs) That's what da- I was laughing daddy, about. Daddy, daddy comes in, in again. He's <laughs> no, like, I got you, buddy. On, Don't worry about me. it. Don't oh, worry God. about it. We got you, buddy. Why don't you just go over there? Have a peanut butter and jelly. Everything will be fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can find there are there is some concert footage 
of him live in the late 70s, early 80s, and it's pretty badass for the time. I'll, I'll, I'll give him that. Yeah. He's, he's definitely got like a style, like for sure. Like the album covers, I think, are all kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of kind of like cool vibe thing going yeah, on. Yeah, his aesthetic is, it reminds me of Sparks kind of. Totally. Like, just weird, stark pictures. Yes. Of, yeah. 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 All right. So, gents, what do you say we jump into these songs on the focus list? Let's go. Let's do it. All right. So, we are going to jump into our first song on the focus list. This was the biggest hit in the USA. This one is called Cars. hasn't heard this song <laughs> i've heard it enough certainly yeah sure <laughs> this was another one of those very monotonous songs it's two ideas and one of the ideas is let's just have the low note follow the high note and the vocals follow the high note as well it's there's one melody that he wrote basically for the song i just couldn't do it i couldn't i couldn't get into it i, I mean if any of you was like marty i just recorded this song check it out and you sent this to me <laughs> I'd be like, you guys, this is fucking awesome. <laughs> it's a cool song. I watched the, the music video on YouTube, and I was reading the comments, and there, there's so many like kids on YouTube. I guess it was, this was marked as like kid-friendly content oh, sure. or something. Yeah, right, right. Because all these kids that are like, I'm 13, or like I'm 12, I've never heard, this is like first time listening to this song. It's like one of the coolest songs I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it holds up, though. That's my point. My point is it holds up. I Definitely could not disagree more. I did not <laughs> like this song very much. It just, it seemed underbaked. I know I use that term a lot, but I, again, I love counter melodies and there just wasn't any counter melodies. And the two ideas didn't really seem to hold up as a full song to me. Just a note that this song does not lead off the album. This was the first single released. What number is this? It's the second to last song on the album. Really? It is. It's the second oh, no. last song is of this... the original release of the album, right? We call it the Marty rule, which is yes. assuming that the second to last album, a song on the album is the worst. Because the original oh, no, release the ended in Engineers. It's the second to last song, oh. nine out of 10. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> so Marty, either you have to say that your theory is wrong or that this song is not good. <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> I, must, I must not be looking at the original album. Yeah, the original album ends at Engineers. It's only 10, yeah. 10 tracks long. They released a lot of different versions of this album. So this song is actually about an incident that he had while he was driving. This is not about robots taking over the earth or anything. He was in a car accident, and he was so terrified because the people in the other car got out of, of their car and were basically like trying to kill him. So he saw a gap in the lane and floored it, and he wind up driving on the pavement, and people were jumping out of the way. And he always thought that cars were like tanks for civilians, which I just thought was kind of funny. <laughs> Yeah, felony hit and run. That's great. Good concept for a song. In terms of the simplicity and half-bakedness, he wanted to learn how to play bass. So he went out and bought a bass. And the very first four notes that he played was this. Da -da -da -da. And so he took that and then went, oh, I could play that on synth as well. And it became this 
song. Now, Beggars And it also became another song in this album, basically. <laughs> oh, 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 God. You got you to you hold off on that yeah. one. <laughs> that's, uh, right, yeah, yeah. That's, that's hilarious. He leans in a lot to, you talked about this concept of let the note develop. Just mm-hmm. play one note and kind of fuck with the pitch or the amplitude of it. And he does that a lot. That's his version of a counter melody on this is like a synth drone note that kind of goes. It is know? grating. And, it's cool, yeah. but it eventually becomes the sonic assault that he talked about. I will be honest, as much as I enjoyed this album, it is rough by the end. I mean, you were just, it's like a metal album, like a heavy metal album, where by track six, you're like, oh my God, I just want a clean guitar or something. Now, what I did appreciate about this album was that he actually used analog acoustic drums on all the tracks. There's no drum And a good drummer. And a good drummer. And you can tell it has a cool organic vibe underneath with the rhythm section as all there's all this crazy synth noise so i thought that was a cool mixture that he didn't necessarily dive into drum programming yet so the drummer on this album is not his uncle right it is not no, it is not, not his, his uncle. uncle yeah no he was a guy named cedric sharply who was in a prog rock band called druid you should listen to him. That's it's like awesome. straight up, yes, rip off 70s. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, prog band. Yeah. So he was really like, restraining himself on this album. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Their songs, like, the, I listened to some Druid actually before I got on today. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'm going to revisit this. The songs are all like 13 minutes long, you know? <laughs> nice. Druid, I would have right. dug that more than this album. Druid, yeah. yeah. Probably. All right, let's move on to our next song on the focus list. This one is called Metal. So this is about a machine that was created to be human-like, but was very aware that it wasn't human. And it was sad. It was frightened of the engineers who made it, and it didn't understand why it cried. It could only look forward to a life of regret and sadness. What? I looked at the lyrics. I didn't get a lot of that out of this, but that was Gary's inspiration Mm. and meaning behind this song. So it's autobiographical. Right. (laughs) Never be loved. I'm a robot. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it could be a, maybe a tribute to his love for the synth and his love for mechanics. You know, because because M- Moogs have that metally weird tinny sound to them, and it kind of reads like an ode to that. I want to be you. I want to you know plug me in, turn me on, that kind of stuff. You know, I think he had a unique perspective as well. From the point of having autism, where he said he always felt like he was kind of on the outside looking in, like he was never, he was human, but he was never part of the human race. So I think that's why he identifies so much with robots and is fascinated by this idea of entities that are in and amongst humans, but are not human. It's almost like he's living the characters that he's writing about, which I thought was kind of cool. Listen, I don't hate this song. I don't really hate any of the songs on this album, but... This is just another 
two really simple ideas, another song where there's two instruments essentially playing the same thing the whole time. And idea number two for this song is let's just lay out on one chord for 12 seconds and then go back to the same thing that we were doing. And it's the kind of album that when I heard it the first time, I was like, ah, not really my thing, but okay. And then after having to listen to it five, 10, 15 times, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I need more to my songs. I just, I know I'm letting my biases show. And that's why Adam, I was saying, I'm like, I'm ready to be convinced why my personal taste has no bearing on whether or not this is important. <laughs> sure. But right? my personal taste yeah. does not follow this type of music. I think you have to take like kind of the whole package into consideration, you know, the the style, the music of the time and the music on this album and kind of roll them up into one kind of aesthetic, like you said earlier. And it kind of makes a little bit more sense. And also like go into like, imagine going to like a warehouse, you know, at two in the morning in the rainy UK and having this kind of music just turned up really loud. I mean, you would definitely bop your head to it. I would. Be pretty badass, no, I, yeah. I, yeah. Your quick fun fact of the day for this song. He says the he says the line, my Mallory heart. I was wondering what the hell does that mean? Mallory was a battery brand that was eventually renamed Duracell in 1978. Oh, wow. So when he says my Mallory heart, he's talking about a robot with a battery heart. All right, let's move this thing on to the next song on our focus list. This one is called Complex. Funny enough, the most complex song yeah, you right. listen to. <laughs> My first note is, oh, this sounds like a song. Yeah. Okay. There's like <laughs> this stuff going different. on here. Yeah, right. Yeah. I also noticed that the lyrics for this song on Spotify, you know, the lyrics sync are wrong. They're wrong. They're totally wrong. Yep. It's a different yeah, song. Weird. Yeah. Not yeah. making a uh, great case for this being super important that I didn't even care enough to get <laughs> nobody the got lyrics it. right. Yeah. Nobody's picked up on this so far. Come on. <laughs> So I have a question, and Adam, you might be able to answer this. Sure. Is this synth violin? Because there is violin no, listed on the album. It's an actual, I either thought it was a viola. It's a, it's or, a viola. It's a viola. I did like the, again, the organic mixture. I think there is a piano on here. There is the viola. The drums are kind of cool in this. They groove a little bit. That drummer's really tasty. I will. I will give it to him that the organic and synthetic mix Sounds does cool. yeah. it adds a lot it's a very good sound and i i think my main qualm with the album is just i wished that that sound had been applied to songs that had a little bit more to them one thing to consider too is he's he's 20 years old when he's making this stuff and it's you know yeah yeah it's but kinda, you kind of cool you know you can still write an ending to the song because this song just ends <laughs> out of nowhere like I definitely found myself looking at me like did that song just end
Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of a weak ending. It just there's just no, it's little, not even it's a, an ending. They just yeah, stop playing. Just, That's not an ending. <laughs> Stopping playing is not an ending. This song is about fans, his crazy fans, and the media, and specifically about death threats from these extreme fans who would call themselves Numenoids. Oh, <laughs> humanoids. No. That's great. <laughs> death threats, huh? He does not seem like he raises to the level of wishing death upon him. I won't say that much. <laughs> he seems, yeah, very unassuming. I, I don't really get it. All right, uh, we're going to keep moving this thing along. Next up is the song M-E, or is it me? Either way, it stands for mechanical engineering. Let's play that. I know it's three notes. I know it's kind of weak. I thought this tune was pretty cool. Again, I said this one sounds like a song. And this one sounded a little bit more baked. And I got to tell you, I really liked the last two minutes and 30 seconds of the song where he stops changing chords. It stops just being a two chord back and forth type of thing. And they lay on that one chord and it builds the tension. I wanted more of that. It almost gets funky. Yeah. I, I would, if, I mean, funky would be the last word I would use to describe any of this music, but <laughs> but it almost, like, there's almost a little bit of, like, slappy funk drumming, drum bass thing happening in this song, especially towards the end. Yeah, and I complain about underbaked, and I complain about not enough going on, but I think that in a lot of circumstances, two chords back and forth between each other is way worse than just one chord with tension. And one chord with tension almost is more. It's like the less is more principle. You're doing a little too much for it to be less is more when you have two chords going back and forth. But when you throw in just one chord hanging out, I actually really dug the last two and a half minutes of the song, which is a long outro. It's kind of a long ending to the song, but it's the best part of the song. As much as I liked this one, I did say that I was really exhausted at the end of this one. But there is something that happens at 106. There's this little harmony melody that's really cool, and it's almost like a percussive synth sound. It like comes in, perks your ear up a little bit. I also thought the drums sounded really cool. In fact, I thought the drums great. the drums sounded like the drum tone from Superstition by Stevie Wonder. Like oh, yeah. they just got that. something about them and I've heard that song so many times that it kind of popped up in my ear, so. But yeah, co- a cool tune. Now that you mentioned harmony, is there any vocal harmony on this album? You, I don't there's a lot of doubling. Yeah. yeah. He doubles. 
he's got a weird vocal treatment. Maybe he almost exclusively is doubling in that kind of weird flat delivery that he has, which gives it a unique sound. I don't particularly like it, but it gives it a unique sound. But I'm not hearing, like, I'm trying to think back in my head if there's any songs that have vocal harmony on them. I don't think there is now that you say that. There's zero vocal harmony on this. Yet another aspect of music I really like. It's just not on this album. (laughs) All right, we're going to move this thing along, finish off our focus list with the last song. This is called Observer. Better known as Cars 2. <laughs> <laughs> My note is that much like the Pixar movie is Cars 1 ain't that great, but Cars 2 sucks real bad. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this was my low point. I I listened to everything so much. Honestly, everything started to sound a little bit the same. But now that you call out that this is Cars 2, I agree. I also thought this riff was pretty lame. Just, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really lame riff. I mean, it's the riff from Cars, though, which is also a lame right. riff. So. <laughs> oh, no. Did I just shoot myself in the foot? <laughs> The one, my one note is the bass player gets some on the outro. It's like the first time he actually, he peeks his head above and just like, beep, 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 beep. You're like, <laughs> I oh, got okay. This. I'll hit a couple Nice notes. little lick there. The whole time I was just like, There's really, you're really not doing anything, are you? And then he gets, he gets some a little bit on the outro. I'm like, okay, there we go. Good for you, Paul Gardner. Who Wait actually a, came from Two-Boy Army. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And lasted about five more years after this album before he overdosed on heroin and died. There's your drugs for the album. Yeah, seriously. Okay. They were doing a little rock and roll shit. Okay. <laughs> this song was often, he, he notes that this song was misinterpreted as kind of like a stalker anthem or a peeping Tom or somebody kind of lurking for sex, but it was actually written when he was a teen. And again, the Asperger's things always feeling like he was on the outside looking in at others, observing the world, but not being a part of it. He was the observer. I definitely didn't get stalker. I got social weirdo from this one of like walking down the street and being confused by people having lunch in a conversation or something like that. Like, what are you doing? How could you possibly be interacting with another human being? What was the, there was a send up movie from the early two thousands where they made fun of American beauty. And then like a bunch of those movies, but there was one where if you remember in American beauty, there was like that really quiet, weird kid. And they like yeah. dialed it up for whatever it was American teen or something maybe like that. Maybe American movie, maybe not another teen movie or yes, something I like that. Yes, I think that was yeah. it. And so I kept picturing that over the top weird antisocial kid throughout listening to this album. Yeah, the unbelievable character in American Beauty, the one that you're like, that's a bit much. Right. Yeah, that's Gary Newman. Okay. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for our song list. So what we do now on every episode is that we throw it around the studio and get those ever-crucial votes on whether or not you need to hear this before you die. So 
I'm going to throw it over to Marty first. I, I watched some interviews with this guy, and he seems like a pretty like decent person. But that doesn't mean anything for this <laughs> podcast. So I'm going <laughs> to say this is not required listening for anyone. All right. Tom. Marty, you surprised me with your vote there, Marty. I thought you were going to be a yes, like an enthusiastic yes on this one. No, I, I, I like it, but I don't see myself, again, you have to have some... I don't. I'm not always consistent with these with, with these things, but <laughs> you. Uh, I, I have to imagine myself listening to the album at least one other time in my life, and I and I don't see myself doing this, doing it for this one. I'm going to go ahead and be, as usual, the paragon of consistency here, and say that Adam, this is all your fault. You didn't convince me, and I'm gonna. All right. <laughs> it was a very interesting story, and I think that he sounds like a good guy. He sounds like. An interesting guy who achieved what he wanted to achieve, but did this make me feel like I understood music better? And did this feel like it was so cutting edge that it I could not completely appreciate other music without hearing this? No. And did I appreciate this album enough to make me want to listen to it again? Definitely not. So um, I'm a no on this one as well. All right. Well, two is going to do it, which means it doesn't matter what I say. But I will chime in, and I'm actually going to say yes, as often happens when you're the person doing the research. I do think that he was at the forefront of what would become New Wave. I think that after listening to this album and learning about him, I think that whole synth movement of the late 70s and early 80s makes a bit more sense. And he also definitely had impact downstream as well. Nine Inch Nails was a big one that they kept talking about and how during the recording of Downward Spiral, Trent Reznor was listening to Gary Newman constantly as they were going in and out of the studio. So I think he left a mark. I think he definitely helped move out of the punk scene and into new wave. So it's a yes for me, but that is not enough to do it. So Gary Newman, I am sorry to let you know that it is a no from the group here. So everyone in the UK, you can start sending your hate mail to Tom and Marty. Care Sorry, of. Gary. <laughs> <laughs> so as you know, we've got a week to prepare and an hour to share. So if we've missed a key detail or screwed up some part of the Gary Newman story, or if you're one of our many UK's listeners and you've got some additional context, please write to us at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Now, speaking of writing in, Rob, who is off this week, has handed the mailbag over to me, and I'm going to dig my hand in and pull out a couple missives from our listeners. Martin from Dublin, he writes in, Hi guys, really enjoying your romp through the 1001 albums. Just thought I would contact you to put a bit of context onto the Soft Cell album you recently reviewed. Oh, no. (laughs) When the album was released, Britain was a tough place to live, a time when the Conservative Party was in control of British Parliament under the leadership of Margaret Thatcher. A lot of music from those times dealt with the alienation and lack of compassion the government had for those people, not fortunate enough to have access to the privileged position as those who voted Tory. Much of the music against the backdrop originated in cities such as Leeds, Sheffield, Manchester's, all cities in the north of England. Soft Cell created this album to highlight the sleazy and dark underbelly that a lot of Tory politicians and other notables at the time were involved in. It's not a perfect album, as you guys pointed out, but it did represent a side of life that many who were not fortunate to have money 
the connections to have better lives ended up being involved in just to scrape a living. Keep on rocking, guys. Love the show. Love the moaning, complaining, and championing of unknown treasures. I also love the, these are poor underclass guys with thousands of dollars worth of synth technology to make their <laughs> albums really <laughs> selling me on how hard scrabble these dudes were. <laughs> I've yes. already forgotten what, so- what song Soft Cell sings. So. Oh, the only song okay. worth remembering is Sex Dwarf, of course. <laughs> oh, Speaking right. of which, great transition. I know you didn't see these, but well done. Stan from Portland writes in to say, listen to the Soft Cell episode this morning. You guys didn't exactly leave me in a lather of anticipation to go check it out, but I write because of Marty's mention of having heard Sex Dwarf sung recently at karaoke in Portland, which is hilarious to me because that's how I became aware of the song at karaoke in Portland. Though it was probably (laughs) a year or so back, I remember saying to a friend, what the fuck is this? And the friend saying, it's soft sell. Anyway, very funny stuff to me personally. Ask Marty if he heard it at Baby Ketten Karaoke, like I did. At, at, at where? K- Baby Ketten, Ketten Karaoke. Babe, nope, not okay. Baby Ketten. I have been there, though. Oh, right. <laughs> of course. He said of course, yeah. <laughs> their song selection is unbelievable. Of course they would have Sex Dwarf. <laughs> well, well, thank you, Stan, for writing in with your karaoke stories from Portland. Again, if you've got any more context, anything you want to tell us, please write in at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. At this point in the episode, we got to get our homework assignment. So we're going to throw it over to Tom to see what album we're going to be listening to for next week. Take it away, Tom. Thank you very much, Adam. I am going to pull the Albinator out. It has been standing in the corner, racking its gears, trying to understand (laughs) the complexities of human interaction. I think I can snap it out of its reverie for a second and get it to spit out an album for us. So, without any further ado, drum roll, please. We will be listening to... The album is Songs of Leonard Cohen by Nana Cherry. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly by Leonard Cohen. I have never heard songs of Leonard Cohen. I've heard Leonard Cohen songs done by other people. I don't even know what's a Leonard Cohen song. I've heard the name my whole life. I don't know that I know a song by him. His most famous one is Hallelujah that the Jeff Buckley did a version of it that was very famous. Yeah. So so long, Mary Ann, Bird on a Wire. He's got a couple good He's He's the guy who like writes a lot of songs that other people are like, I can do better. Okay. (laughs) I can do it better or I can do better? (laughs) No, I can do that song better. Okay, got it. (laughs) I can do better than you. Yeah. He's also got a very unique, super baritone voice. I wouldn't say good, but low. It's very low. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right, cool. So there you go, folks. You have your homework assignment for next week. The album is Songs of Leonard Cohen by Leonard Cohen. And that is going to do it for us here at 1001 Album Complaints. I am Adam. I am Marty. I am Tom. (laughs) I am a robot. Boosh. (laughs) 